Welcome back to Balagan. I'm Kobe Cohen. Every now and then, the tension between the ultra-Orthodox and what is called religious Zionist parties in Israel and secular society comes to a new tip point. A few governments fell due to controversy over religious affairs. And even the last political crisis just before Passover is around the Hametz observance in Israeli hospitals disagreement between MK Edit Silman of Yamina, of Naftali Bennett's uh, right-wing party, and Nitzan Horowitz, the Minister of Health of Meretz, the left-wing party. Along with my guest today, we will get a better understanding of the famous status quo, the biggest conflicts over state and religious, and what was the solution around Hametz in this past Pesach in Israel. I'm glad to host Uri Kedar, my friend, the CEO of Israel Chofshit. Uri, welcome to Balagan. Thanks for having me, Kobe. Nice to be here. So let's start with a short introduction. Tell us a little bit about you and about Israel Chofshit and what do you do? So I'm Uri Kedar. I'm 37. I live in Kibbutz Givat Brenner. It's pretty close to Rehovot for those who are familiar with that area. Also pretty close to the airport. Ichud or Meuchad? No, we, we, our Ichud and Meuchad was, uh, was a broader controversy, but we will get to that in maybe in a different podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's for a different episode. <laughs> yeah. So when I'm married to Ayelet and I'm the father of Imri and Adam, I've been the executive director of Israel Hofshit, or the CEO, as people like to call it in English, for the last four and a half years. And we're an advocacy organization that promotes liberal policies on issues of religion and state. So this is what we do. And we also have the biggest, I would say, wedding arm in, in the Israeli civil society. We marry couples outside of the rabbinut, and we also help them solidify their status as common law marriage. I guess we will get to the lack of freedom of marriage in Israel sometimes in our conversation. And this is mainly what we do. We are one of the biggest organizations in our field and are working to change the policy both on a national and on a municipal level. And your hands were quite busy just prior to Pesach um, because of an appeal you made for the Supreme Court, right? Yes. The appeal itself actually is something that ended more than a year ago. And it ended with the Supreme Court ruling on an issue that actually its legal situation is very simple. Sometimes during the past decade, on behalf of Rabbanut orders, hospitals in Israel instructed the security guards to start going through people's bags to see what kind of food they bring in over, not even only Passover, but a few days before the Chag, to make sure that they're not bringing anything into the hospital. And that's also an important thing to say, I, I believe. We are not talking only about chametz, pita, or bread, or something. We're talking about anything that has to do with the actual premise kosher of food. Non kosher. Yeah, it, it has really nothing to do with specific fruit. You were allowed to bring only a fruit or a vegetable or a sealed bag of something that is bought and has a kashrut certificate on it. So if you're a religious person and you made soup for your grandmother who's hospitalized, you can also not bring it to the hospital under their instruction. And there were quite a few Supreme Court appeals that were actually united. And we specifically played the role of an advisor to the Supreme Court 
with our friends from Nehmanei Torah Avodah, who is a religious organization, we brought together a compromise that suggested that the premises of the cafeterias and the food courts in the hospitals should, of course, remain kosher for kosher observing people to be able to go to the hospital. But with that being said, it was agreed that there will be no looking in people's bags and to see what they're bringing in. And I must say that the Supreme Court, the deliberations took almost four years, but really from the first get-go, the Supreme Court justices really said out front that no matter what's going to happen, they will not allow the searching the bags phenomena to, to continue. And they urged the Rabbanut to bring in any kind of solution that they so choose that did not happen. The only solution, by the way, that they talked about at some point is that they said that they advise the hospitals that those of them who do not want to keep kosher can decide they're not kosher. That means hospitals for secular people and hospitals for religious people, which is something that we thought is hideous idea. But it was really obvious that they're not putting any sort of suggestion towards anything that they would actually want to implement. And it brought eventually the court to rule that they cannot instruct the guards to go through your bag. And that's pretty much it. And this became a thing again, as M.K. Silman said, that because the Minister of Health instructed the hospitals to keep in line with the Supreme Court ruling, then she felt as if that's sort of a final straw. But I think that we also need to be very blunt about the fact that a day after she withdrew from the coalition, she right. said that actually that's not really about that. It's about other things. And the other things that she said were that the government is pushing forward with reforms in religion and state. All the reforms, the major reforms that were pushed in this government were pushed by people from her government fraction from her party. party. So um, I think we can put it in this specific framing. The leading part of any kind of reform that did happen until now in, in this coalition came from the right wing and not from the left. So when we're talking about the public sphere, okay, and, um, and hospitals, for example, we want to go back to what's known as the status quo between state and religious in Israel. Can you elaborate on that? Can you tell us a little more? What is this famous status quo? Who are the parties and why we needed it? Uh, I'm not sure that we actually needed it for that. <laughs> That's not <laughs> up for me to decide. Um, but in 1947, um, David Ben-Gurion, who's then the head of the Jewish Agency, sent a letter to the leaders as part of the deliberations, the international deliberations over the UN decision about the land of Israel. And the idea was that they wanted to have some kind of a unity within the Jewish community around that. And, and there was a fear that the ultra-Orthodox community will reject the notion of the Jewish state. So Ben-Gurion sent a letter to the leaders of the Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox faction called Agudat Israel, saying that there will be sort of four major elements that he believes should be kept in the up-and-coming state. The free day for Jews will be Shabbat, that in every um, governmental kitchen, there will be kosher food, 
that issues of personal status, aka marriage, divorce, etc., will be conducted sort of under Jewish law, and that there will be an autonomy in the education system. And that's sort of what people refer to when they actually talk about the status quo. Well, the status quo became sort of a catchphrase for saying the way things are at the moment. That, that's sort of the, the translation and also the policy translation in Israel. And each side is sort of trying, I think wrongfully, by the way, to hold that as something that you cannot change. And I, I say wrongfully because things change. And the public sphere in Israel is changing, by the way, is changing towards the liberal side. When we hear that people who are more conservative, mostly conservative, of course, are angry about changes in the status quo, first of all, they have every right to be angry. They, of course, can do whatever they want with that in, in, in the accepted democratic ways, but they have a point. The public sphere in Israel is becoming more secular, generally speaking, and of course there are places in which the other things happen, but generally speaking, that's where we're heading as a country. And I also think that sometimes also happens from the liberal side. People are saying, okay, but that's against the status quo. And I think that that's not how you refer to policy. I personally, with all due respect to David Ben-Gurion in 1947, I don't think that everything that Ben-Gurion promised to the leaders of the ultra-Orthodox Ashkenazi party back then is something that my children need to live by for myself. And it's also, it's becoming sort of an empty term because everyone is using it for their own political sake. So when one person says status quo and the other person says status quo, and, and those are very different things, then I think that the term itself maybe should come to an end. So we have the status quo for 1947, but life goes on and things change. And you're talking about the Hametz. Actually, I do know that in 1986, if I remember correctly, it's a law that was called, um, I think, the law of Passover, of observance in Passover, something like that, was defining where you can or can't have Hametz, actually, in public sphere. Was that connected also to... Um, to the appeal to the Supreme Court, or it was not a part not, of, not, the, not of the really. whole conversation around it? Not really, because the, the conversation, the, the law that you're referring to, which in Hebrew is named Chok Chag Hamatzot. Uh, That's the, the official law, name, but we yeah, made it shorter the, the, with Chok Hametz. Right. Uh, the, 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 the direct translation is the law of the Matzo Matzo holiday. holiday something. And that actually refers to where a business owner can or cannot display anything that contains wheat or wheat flour during Passover. That's a law that is not upheld. And we checked that a, a few years ago. There isn't any scrutiny over that law actually being upheld. The law says that a business owner must not sell any wheat product during Passover or must not display. So when you go into a supermarket in Israel, yeah, you'll have... sometimes you, you see like sort of a nylon covering yeah. of, of thousands of meters. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it, it looks very weird. Some supermarkets, by the way, if you take it off and, and take something from the shelf, by the way, that, that isn't necessarily a pita. It can be like bamba from before or, the or pasta or yeah. whatever. So sometimes if you'll take it 
and you'll try to pay, they'll let you do it. Sometimes not. But generally speaking, there isn't any real attempt to actually withhold the law. But the argument over hospitals wasn't part of that. The argument over the hospitals had to do mostly with food that you cook in your house. In your house. Um, There weren't arguments for forcing anyone to actually sell a pita in the hospital. That's that's not really the case. So I'm not sure that that's directly related. Yeah, and it's interesting because everything that people heard was actually that Edith Tillman got into a clash with Ditan Horowitz over the kosher for Passover observance. But now we know in overall that what the security guards were doing is illegal in overall. How come the rabbinical institutions decided they're trying to enforce something like checking the bags for food when the security guards, uh, you know, role is actually to check for weapons and uh, dangerous artifacts? So the thing is that if you're asking how does the rabbinut decide, then that you will need to bring someone who's smarter than I am. Um, <laughs> the, the rabbinut has their own ways of deciding what they're getting into. And, and for a lot of times, they're doing stuff just because they feel that they can. And that was also, as I see it, that was also the case here. They tried to force some kind of a new, a new regulation, a new policy. And it was actually interesting because during the Supreme Court discussion, they were asked, like, what happened? Like, why did you decide that after decades that never happened, all of a sudden you want to instruct the security guards? And also, by the way, one of the parties that we were able to, to bring to the table in these discussions were the security operation companies who are actually hiring the security guards and said, listen, guys, we have no authority to actually do what they're asking us to do. We have, and because a security guard, and it needs to be understood, I think, an Israeli security guard is a civilian. It's not a cop. They're not part of the police. They're, they don't have any special regulation that allow them to go through your bag. All that they're able to do is keep in line with civil order and civil security. And they are very limited in their the capacity of what they are, are able right. or, or not able to do. And the Rabbanu just tried, because if you think that your power is unlimited, then you're trying to enforce new regulations. And during the Supreme Court rulings, they were asked, okay, but what happened? Like, did something all of a sudden became more problematic and they didn't have an answer for that? They also didn't have an answer for what was the exact point in which you started to apply Yeah, what was the trigger? Yeah, and, and, there, and there wasn't trigger as far as we were able to understand and they didn't give any, any kind of explanations around that. So... It wasn't really a, a, a thing. From your experience and from what you saw, was there any connection between who was sitting in the government to how the rabbinical institutions acted around kosher observance? That's a good question. I, I'm not that sure. I'm not that sure. I think that you see them try every once in a while. Yeah, I think that you can definitely understand that when they have the backing of the ultra-Orthodox party and the right-wing coalition, then yes, they understand that they are able to actually 
go along with something and not have any government pushback. And that's the only reason, by the way, that that needed to go to the court, because no one really understood why all of a sudden that became an issue. It's really about power more than anything else. It's always about power. Well, eventually we get to politics. If we're talking back at, you know, the status quo and what's happening in the public sphere around kosher and around, you know, you were talking about civil marriage. It seems like the rabbinical institutions are trying to get a hold of everything they can, while other uh, sections in Israeli society are saying, listen, it's a live and let live situation, and that's how it should be. But when we go and we're talking about kosher, okay, I want to go a little back to the 90s, because I remember when uh, there was the big wave of Aliyah from uh, the former Soviet Union, and we had almost one million new Olim Chadashim, there was also a big issue around pork and non-kosher meats. And over there, the rabbinical institutions also tried to enforce, you know, their power over what people will eat. How did that end? Do you remember? I want to give you... If, if we're oh, going it's not ended that, yet. Actually, <laughs> no, it didn't end. But, but I think that we can actually take a look at something that Americans understand a lot about and something that is very recent. I, I just checked over the last Passover. What is Domino's Pizza doing in Israel during the Chag? Okay. Because for a lot of years, what they did is the only branches that they kept open in Israel during the Chag was the ones located in Arab cities, okay. in, in mostly non-Jewish centers, and in mixed cities, like in Ramle, for, for example. And I went back because all of a sudden this year, I, I saw that they are saying that the only branches that they will close are the ones who are kosher, which also is a new phenomenon. You didn't have kosher, kosher dominoes right. a few years ago, which I think, by the way, is, is a good phenomenon. Like, I think that they have a nice pizza, so I'm happy. And that's the one that my daughter really likes. So I'm happy that they also have kosher branches. But all the other branches were open. And I went back, I found one of their emails in 2019. And in 2019, they still were at the position in which they're closing everything that is not in, in Arab or mixed cities. And now they're opening everything that is not kosher. So a lot of the things that has to do with kashrut in Israel eventually end up in the area of supply and demand. You also see in, in the last few years more, I would say, higher class of restaurants that open as kosher restaurants. That's, that's a newer phenomenon. But on the bigger picture, you see more and more and more restaurants that, by the way, that's also what Domino's do, did. They, you were able to buy gluten-free pizza for, for the same cost, which you can't really do on, on a regular basis. I know that because yeah. that's what my wife needs. Um, it's a lot more expensive in Israel, gluten-free yeah, food. So, so their gluten-free pizza for Passover was at the same price. Um, and they actually said, you can choose whatever you want. You can take the regular pizza. You can take a gluten-free pizza, which will be sort of kosher or kosherer, maybe. <laughs> um, but I, I think generally we're just talking about supply and demand. And, and you now have supermarkets in Israel who are bluntly not enforcing the uh, the Hametz law and are selling non-kosher foods 
throughout the year and end in Passover and whenever and are open on Shabbat. And you have a lot of bigger supermarket chains who would like to cater to a religious or traditional audience and they will not open on Shabbat and everything that you will be able to buy in, let's say, Shufersal, which is the biggest chain of supermarkets in Israel, will be kosher. But there is a growing market. And actually, when I talked about this Domino's thing a few days ago with a friend, he said, yeah, you should also take a look into McDonald's. Yeah, I wanted to mention McDonald's. So McDonald's also, by the way, which for years have sold cheeseburger in a kosher... In a kosher uh, bun, kosher for Passover bun. In a kosher bun. bun uh, Yeah, so they continue to do that, but they also have regular bun. So I think that kashrut overall and mainly is becoming something that is driven by market forces. And when there is a demand, there will be a supply. You know, you're mentioning McDonald's, and I want to mention actually somebody else when you're talking about markets. Actually, a good, a good example for somebody who's respecting, I would say, you know, the Jewish people in overall, okay, was actually Hamisa Bulafia who passed away, if I remember correctly, two years ago from uh, the famous Abulafia bakery, who used to shut down his bakery on two occasions. One was on Yom Kippur, when Jews were fasting, and the other one was for Passover because he was non-kosher. So there were huge lines to buy pitas from him before Pesach, and right after Pesach, everybody would run to him also to buy uh, pitas. But that was not a part, I mean, he never had a rabbinical uh, certificate, right, of kosher. Right. And he did it because of, let's say, he knew also his people in a way. How do you see that things will change in Israel when we're talking about the rabbinical institutions? And I know that we haven't mentioned, you know, we didn't talk eventually about civil marriage in Israel. That's another topic that we need to discuss. We'll save it for another episode. And public transportation, which is also another topic that... Uh, we didn't discuss, but if we're talking about public sphere in Israel, how do you see that it's going to end with the rabbinical institutions? Do you think that eventually they'll be able to continue enforcing the people in most places in Israel or things will change and uh, it will be more of a live and let live? I think that where we're heading is toward the general public sphere, as, as we see it on most issues, is becoming more secular, more liberal, more live and let live. But it won't happen without a fight, and it needs to be said. A lot of the issues that we're talking about, like I think that probably the biggest public sphere change over the last few years is the decision by quite a few municipalities in the Gush Dan area to operate buses on Shabbat. For those of you who haven't been here over the COVID crisis and are now starting to get back, if you will be in Tel Aviv and its surroundings, you will have buses for free on Shabbat going around the biggest metropolitan in the country. That's a huge change that came from the bottom up, mainly because municipalities saw that there is a demand and they found a way to do that. They just do it for free. Tel Aviv by itself invests millions of, millions of shekels in order to have the infrastructure to run buses on Shabbat. And that's something that four or five years ago was unconceivable. And you see that the buses are packed, just full wherever they go. And we are now starting to talk about the light train in Tel Aviv, which is going to be a huge topic in, in again, 
for those of you who have visited Israel over the last few years, you probably saw the town dug from everywhere you go to everywhere you go, because hopefully we will have a subway at some point in our lives. Some sort um, of a subway. <laughs> yeah, subway, not really a subway, something. Yeah. Um, but it's supposed to start running this November, and they are very, a lot of skepticism here, but the company which is in charge of that said, no, we'll run on November 2022, which is around the corner. And there's going to be a big public discussion about what does it mean that you invested billions of shekels from taxpayers' money and then for almost 20% of the week, because the public consultation here doesn't stop exactly when Shabbat starts and works again when it ends. You have quite a few hours at the beginning and at the end that it still doesn't work. And, and what does it mean that you put together a huge infrastructure project and then for 20% of the time, it's just not working? That creates a huge economic burden on the project, on the taxpayers. And a lot of those things eventually are moving in, in what we think is the right direction. You see more and more people marrying outside of the Rabenut. And generally speaking, I think that we are heading towards a much more liberal public sphere, but that only happens because there's a public push, and the public push happens because people are fed up with a lot of the things that the Rabbanut are, are in charge of. And, and I think that eventually we will have the Rabbanut and, and its sort of a surrounding bodies being an alternative service for those who wish to get a religious service performed or that they need some kind of a religious service. And it just won't be something that you must do. So that's how I think we're, we're going to see it. Yeah, it's interesting because there are also, if if the ultra-Orthodox really want to come up with a solution, but that's something that will demand a change in the status quo, even now one of the biggest secrets is that most public transportation drivers in Israel are actually Arabs. Most of them are Muslims. So technically you can figure out a solution that they will drive the public transportation on Shabbat. And even if the government will subsidize those you know, the rides on Shabbat and nobody will pay for public transportation. It's something that is doable and it will actually be for the people's benefit in overall, some will say. I think that mainly there is a thing that when people will search for solutions, solutions will be found. But the revenue does not do that. And when you're very strong monopoly, then probably on, on a lot of the issues, you just don't see a need to look for solutions unless your back is against the wall. And I think that that's where it's heading because the public just decides that, okay, whatever, you don't want to marry Russian-speaking Israelis, you don't want to marry LGBT couples, you don't want to marry people who just don't want a religious service, fine, we will come up with the alternative. So I don't think that the, the problem is the lack of solution. The, the problem is the lack of will. will. At, at the rabbinic side to actually come up with anything. Our time is almost up. I know that you need to run and get the kids back from right. uh, from their daycares. But any last words to our audience or something that we haven't discussed, that we haven't touched? Um, no, mainly I think that we are, we're touching on the issue that is it's fundamental for what does it mean to be a Jewish and democratic state. And we usually say, I am not a fan of the discussion about the tension between Jewish and democratic, because I don't think that being the majority of Jews in Israel are not religious. 
and are not conservative on those issues and do not see a conflict between having public consultation on Shabbat and being Jewish, between right. getting married outside of the Rabbinut and being Jewish. And I think that that's part of the effort of saying, listen, we also will be a part of the discussion of what does it mean to be Jewish in Israel, and we're not going through you and buying a ticket to get into the discussion, which is something that a lot of time is sort of the general feeling that we need to buy in to the discussion. We need to have right. the permission to take part in the discussion, and, and we're not, and, and we're the majority of Israelis. So I think that it's up to us, and it's up to everyone who cares about what does it mean to have a Jewish and democratic country. And I will ask you, Kobe, to put my email in the notes of the show. And oh, for course. anyone who wants to touch base, you're more than welcome. Thank you very much. I will put also the website link to uh, Israel Hofschitz's uh, website so people can read more about you and see what you're doing. And I will definitely, since you asked so nicely, I will definitely add your email address as well so people can reach out to you directly. So Uri, thank you very, very much for uh, joining me today and enlightening our audience. And we would love to have you back. <laughs> Great. It'll be my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.